0: Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Okay, so I want to start this morning by looking, start off by looking at the first altar that Abraham built, um, and it's in it's in um, Genesis twelve six. You know, God calls Abraham Abraham my friend in Isaiah forty one eight. You know, and he says, you know, when he goes when he's about to destroy Sodom he goes and says you know am I going to hide this from Abraham my friend mm-hmm. so let's look at Genesis 12:6. it says Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the great terebinth tree of Moray now the Canaanites were in the land at that time then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said I will give this land to your descendants so Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him so we know the story of course um abram had been given this instruction to leave his father's house and go into the land that he would be shown and he wasn't actually shown it at that point he was just told to go into it and so he goes he, he, so he obeys you know and along with the instruction came these huge covenant blessings there were seven of them if you remember i'm not going to talk about those today but um he has these huge promises by God about the, fut- the future of, of his um, descendants, and so, so in faith, Abraham leaves his father's house and he travels into the land of into the land of Canaan for the first time. And it says here in this verse that looking around, he could see the Canaanites, and the Canaanites were a pretty powerful and hostile people, um, as we know. And then in that place where he could see the Canaanites, the Lord appears to him and restates the promise, I will give this land to your descendants. And in response, Abraham builds this altar. And an altar is basically a place of sacrifice that is raised up, a a place of physical remembrance in a location where the presence of the Lord has appeared. So Abraham builds this altar as as a place of sacrifice and a place of remembrance, and it's about the presence of the Lord, the Lord visiting him. So when I, when I pray about altars, us putting an altar here, that's what we're doing. You know, we, we have the presence of God. And, you know, as we worship him, you know, he, he inhabits the praises of his people. He comes down and he fellowships with us. And there's an exchange that's gone on this morning with each of us. And we can get used to that idea, but that's an extraordinary idea. You know, when we talk about heaven coming down to earth, that's just like an extraordinary idea, an extraordinary thing. It's not an idea; it's a reality. It's what what is actually happening is the Lord inhabits the praises of His people and and comes down into them. And then I was thinking about revival, right? Isn't that just where we just keep on worshiping and He keeps on bringing His presence down, and then all of a sudden, there's an overspill of the presence of God that affects the whole surroundings. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what it is? So this altar that Abraham builds, every time Abraham would pass this way again, despite the situation that he could see with his own eyes around him, the Canaanites and all that stuff, he could see this construction of stones and he could recall that encounter, this promise that was made to him. I will give this land to your descendants every time he goes past that place. And as he goes past the place, he recalls the memory and it brings him back into this place of worship again and the Lord's presence becomes manifest again you know and so the altar is like a conduit to bring heaven to earth if you like so where in the land is this actually this is at the site of shechem okay nowadays known as nablus in the west bank right you hear it on the news okay that's where shechem was Um, And this is the first place that Abraham settles as he goes into the land. And there's significance to that. Let's fast forward a couple of generations now from Abraham to grandson Jacob. Okay. Remember the story, you know, we know this story as well. Jacob cheated his brother, you know, stole his birthright and his blessing. And then ran for his life because he because Esau wasn't happy about it at all. And then he goes in, he goes into the place where his, his um, ancestry is from and, and he marries Leah and then he marries Rachel and, you know, works for Laban. We know all those things. Had, has all these children. I mean, obviously he doesn't have Benjamin until he comes back into the land. But he's had 11 of the kids before he comes back into the land. But he makes his way back into the land at a certain point. I think it's a push factor, really, to be honest. Laban just gets on his wick so much it's like i've got to leave this place <laughs> and so, so he goes goes back into the land and as he's entering the land you know he's really he's really concerned because esau has been such you know was was last time he saw esau it wasn't it wasn't good you know he, he cheated him and then he then he legged it <laughs> and uh, so he's thinking about this reconciliation with his brother as he travels into the land and he gets to the fort of jabbok and he has this encounter with god that takes place over that night you know and and he says he wrestles with god and the lord gave him a new name israel which means about prevailing with god and then he reconciled with his brother as he travels back into the land. And then we see this at the end of that chapter, Genesis 33, 18 to 20. When Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely and in peace at the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the walled city. Then he bought the piece of land on which he had pitched his tents from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So, where Abraham had first built this altar on entering Canaan, now Jacob, two generations later, comes back into the land and builds an altar in exactly the same spot and calls it God, the God of Israel. So, what we have here is a, pers- a place of a personal encounter for Abraham and it becomes the very same place that Jacob, now called Israel by God, the one who struggles and prevails, commemorates his meeting with the Lord and as the Lord establishes Israel's new identity, he simultaneously establishes a tiny square of this land of Israel, this land that belongs to Israel, and dedicates it to the Lord, the God of Israel. So this place of personal remembrance for Jacob becomes a territory you know, for Israel. And then Jacob, while living in this newly established piece of land, he, he, he digs a well. We don't hear about the well being dug in scripture, but we know it's there because it still exists. It's 151 feet deep. It's in Nablus. There's a church built over the top of it. And um, so Jacob's well is in this land that he's, that he's just bought from the sons of, of Hamor at Shechem. And he provides sustenance for his flocks and his herds and his, and his kids in this place. So what, what was a place of personal remembrance becomes a place of community sustenance. You know, where you had an altar, now you have a well. Then it all goes a bit wrong for Jacob because Shechem's the a site where his daughter Dinah is raped and then Simeon and Levi go in there and put it to the sword in revenge. You know, where you put a well, there can be some, there can be some upset. <laughs> um, you know, the enemy doesn't like it, tries to fill it back in again. So Jacob has to move on, and time passes. And then as Genesis draws to a close, we see Jacob's now obviously in Egypt with Joseph and the guys, 120 of them, who go down there. And he's giving his last... He's giving his last um, kind of... in talking about his inheritance that he's giving to each of his kids, and it says, Genesis 48, 21, 22, Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion, Shechem, one mountain ridge more than any of your brothers, which I took, reclaiming it from the land of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So it appears that Jacob, as well as buying some of the land from from Shechem, from um, sons of Hamor, had expanded the territory um, bigger than the initial part that he had originally bought, and he gives it to Jacob. And obviously, Jacob never actually sees it once he's been given it. I think he sees it before when he do- when Jacob maybe first owns it. But once Joseph's in in Egypt, he never goes back to Israel apart from to bury his father, which is in a different place to this. And it appears that Jacob uh, that that um. Jacob's territory is um, important because as the book of Joshua draws to a close we see this Joshua 24 32 now they buried the bones of Joseph which the children of Israel brought up from Egypt at, the, at Shechem in the plot of land which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem for a hundred pieces of money and it became the inheritance of the sons of Joseph so we've still we're still in Shechem here you know and joseph's bones you know joseph dies and then there's 400 and something years to the day that that um, the israelites stay in egypt and then at the point that it, that they come out they take joseph who would have been embalmed in, in a sarcophagus because he was in an egyptian situation yeah and he they take him out in this sarcophagus they carry him around the wilderness for 40 years you know and then eventually they get to bury him at this particular place called Shechem so what was what was a place of personal encounter and promise for Abraham becomes a place of community subs- sustenance from the well in the time of Jacob and a place of inheritance for the sons of Joseph it's interesting eh so now let's fast forward again this time we're going to fast forward quite a few years i'm not sure quite how many it is but um let's go to john chapter four three to six jesus left you dear and returned again to galilee have you got it there yeah great thank you jonathan Now he had to go through Samaria, so he arrived at a Samaritan town called Sychar near the tract of land that Jacob gave his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was then about the sixth hour. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Well, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? I looked it up, and some commentators explain, I knew this already, but they explain that um, Jews didn't like going through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans, right? So they used to go down to the River Jordan. They used to go along the River Jordan. So between Judea and Galilee, Samaria is a problem, right? So they have to go round it. Go down for Jordan, along the Jordan, back, back round to Galilee. Uh, but it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and some commentators say, "Well, this is because it was much quicker to go through." But that's silly because Jesus then stays two more days, so he's not in a hurry. <laughs> um, it's um, Jesus goes through Samaria for, for a particular reason, I think. Yeah, and that's what we're going to think about now. Um, he's not—he's not afraid of the Samaritans. That's certainly true. In the next chapter of John, it says that Jesus only does what he sees his father doing in John 5.19, right? So Jesus goes through Samaria because Jesus is faithful to all his promises and he has fit business to finish in Samaria. What started with Abraham meeting with the Lord and building an altar, the first place that, that he does build an altar becomes the place of the first altar as Jacob comes into the land again it becomes the place where Joseph's bones are buried all in anticipation of the future and all these things look forward prophetically to one thing and that's the the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him and what better place for Jesus to start to bring fulfillment to the promise than the very same town Shechem which is now called Sychar in the New Testament right so so Jesus came to finish his work, to fulfill the covenant promise to Abraham. He would obviously complete it on the cross, but now he's going to take a first fruit at this point in Shechem. And, I, and he says that in this passage. You know, you can read this, obviously. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, in verse 34, and to completely finish his work. So Jesus is talking about completing his work on the cross in one sense. We know that. But he starts it with this harvest at Shechem with striking immediacy. Like, look at verse 35, 36. We know this verse verse, um, really, really well, don't we? You know, he says to the disciples when they come back out of the town, do you not say it's still four months until the harvest comes? Look, I say to you, raise your eyes and look at the fields and see... They are white for harvest. Already the reaper is reaping his wages and is gathering the fruit for eternal life, so that he who plants and he who reaps may rejoice together. It's so interesting to me because Thikar, which is what was which was Shechem, is the only town I think in the Gospels where they actually have a revival on Jesus going there. You know, woe to you Capernaum, woe to you Chorazim. You know, Nazareth, you're rejected. You know, there's. There's a Samaritan town, though, which actually accepts Jesus and is brought into revival through Jesus. And it's the place of Jacob's well. And he says, you know, I've I've come to finish a work. And I think he's also referring to that particular time as well as the work he does altogether on the cross. And he reaps a harvest where others have previously sown because Jesus is always faithful to his promises, You know, it's an amazing thing because we live in a we live in a Christian, you know, a nation which has had Christian history for a long time, you know. And so I was thinking about this passage and at the time I was thinking about this passage, it it was during the fast. And um, the Lord was telling basically showed me all of that stuff in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. He showed me that whole it was like a download from 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 the Lord. And then I was like, that's amazing, Lord. And then he showed me something else. The significance of this passage to Clapham Junction and Battersea. You know, the word that um the Lord gave Deji about Clapham Junction and Battersea. I was um I was up for moving back into London as soon as as soon as we can. I mean I work here during the week, right? It's like coming to work on a Sunday as well. It's, you know. But it's interesting to me because like well for personal reasons i've told you before my my great-grandparents lived about 200 meters that way they were married in the local church over there you know and um that's a that's a strange thought um (laughs) and then we've had this building here for a couple of years and i've said to steve sometimes i wonder what happened in this area which we have such a thread of Christ, Christian ministries in, in this line here. We've got Batty Chapel, which is a Baptist church under here. Kind of interesting. They bought something like 100 people, freed people from Sierra Leone in the beginning of the 20th century to, to London to educate them. Amazing. Amazing stuff, right? Then we have obviously the school. Then we have the Church of the Nazarene opposite the station. And then there's a youth club, club which is run by an amazing guy called Providence House, which is just over there. So we've got this whole line of kind of God's stuff and I was like why is this area so full of Christian ministries so the Lord showed me a well and it's it's right it was right here if I look out the window if I was able to go back in time I would be able to look out this window probably if I was to just go to about here and look over there and there was, a, there was a street called Speak Road, and it was parallel to Grant Road. So Grant Road's just the one, the one that we come in the entrance to. And Speak Road, I think, would have probably been this road here, but before it was renamed and the estate was built. So it would have come along here, basically, parallel to Grant Road. And on Speak Road, S-P-E-K-E, there was a place called Speak Hall. And there was a guy called Richard... Richard Reader Harris, KC, he was, a, he was a barrister, and his wife were the owners of Speak Hall. We know a little bit about him. In 1884, Richard Reader Harris was, a, was an agnostic and he was travelling by train through Ealing and he heard the Tannoy say Ealing, 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 and he heard it as healing, 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 and gave his life to the Lord. Oh, wow. He missed his thought. <laughs> And they decided. So him and his wife were. were, were, They went. He went from being an agnostic to being a full-on preacher. And they based their ministry in Speak Road. I quote: Speak Hall began as a private baths. Interesting. building promoted in the district north of Clapham Junction by the builder John Dickerson around 1870. In 1883, it was converted into a hall for hire, and from 1887, largely taken over by the barrister Richard Reader Harris's non-denominational missionary movement, which had started out on Grant Road, the road we're on, right? Um... Known from 1891, listen to this, as the Pentecostal Mission or the Pentecostal League of Prayer, its charismatic services drew attendances of a thousand and more. This is in a, in a document published by UCL, right? This isn't a Christian document. And continued popular for years and spawned subgroups all over the country. And that's from a UCL survey of London from from 2013. So if you know your dates i know some of you do i know david knows this and others know this as well um the modern pentecostal movement traces its origins back to about 1900 1901 in kansas and then obviously azusa street happens in 1906 but this richard reed harris's pentecostal league started 15 years prior to azusa street in the road just down here Um, And the League's purpose was an interdenominational union of Christian people who, conscious of their own need, would join in prayer to fill believers with the Holy Spirit, revive Christian churches, and spread scriptural holiness. It's kind of interesting. Mm. And Richard Reader-Harris published a newspaper. Uh, It was a monthly newspaper, and it was called Tongues of Fire. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) (laughs) You said it, Victor. <laughs> yeah, and he preaches as speaker almost every day, and he could be seen in Clapham wearing a sandwich board around the area. You know, this is a guy who's an eminent, an eminent QC, like KC, whatever. He's King's Counsel, like barrister, and he's coming with his wife. They bought the, They bought the property through selling some of her jewellery because she was quite upper class. And they just and he used to wear a sandwich board and go around the area, and I, I saw one cop, one two pages of tongues of fire on the internet. I haven't looked at it more detailed than that as yet. And it advertises a, a Whit Monday meeting, a holiness demonstration on Clapham Common at two thirty. So we're thinking about going out there, and uh, there we are. Richard Reader Harris has already gone. <laughs> you know so there's a well that's still bringing living water of Jesus into this community Mm -hmm. and how much more when we're aware of it right and aware of the faithfulness of Jesus to finish the work that he started just like he did at at, um, Shechem when he went to talk to the woman at the well you see this area was first populated and the the station was built in 1838 or 36, 38 and then gradually expanded but this area was marshland and then became was was basically Victorian streets were put up in this area, and then they were only, they were knocked down in the sixties to make way for this estate. So that was that's a little bit of the history for you. I can just picture Richard Reader Harris walking through this community, claiming the Lord's work for it in the future. Lord, keep on keep on moving. And I've got a picture of I've got a picture of Speakall. Do you want to put it up, John? There is. This is at the funeral of Richard Reader-Harris in in, in um, 1909. So you can see his speak calls here. His coffin's just going in. Apparently he's buried in West Norwood Cemetery and 2,000 people went to his funeral. Um, but that was a little hall, which, well, they had 1,000 people in each week, just down there. It's kind of cool, isn't it? And Richard Reader-Harris has gone to be with the Lord, Right. And it's interesting because he went to be with the Lord, and then the league bought, had bought a house on actually two houses on Clapham Common North Side. I, I rode past them on my bike this morning. Number forty-five, number fifty-one, and number forty-five was taken over in nineteen eleven by Oswald Chambers because Oswald Chambers was mentored by Richard Reader Harris, you know, the guy who wrote, who wrote whose books were published after his death. So Oswald Chambers ran a Bible training college there from nineteen eleven to nineteen. Fifteen, uh, and accommodated students of every age, class, and education, as well apparently as anyone in need. Um, and he, they had hundred and six people who went through that Bible College during the t- during that five year period, four or five year period. And then Ch- Chambers' ministry was cut short in Egypt in nineteen seventeen when he died, age forty three, of an, of appendicitis. He refused to go to the hospital because he thought that there was too much need for other beds, um, for the because of the war in the war in Gaza interesting but the work of the Lord still goes on the Lord will finish what he starts the season has changed that's what Deji has has told us last week and I believe this is the season where the fields are white for the harvest and so I was praying about this talk and I was asking the Lord about how we go about bringing this harvest in that he's promised us in this location and in every place where we set our feet across London and beyond and I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, look at how, look at how Jesus did it at, the, at, at, at Jacob's well. So we're going to just spend a little bit of time looking at this passage, which I think we're probably quite familiar with. I'm not going to go through every detail, but I just want to pull out a few things from the passage, uh, specifically about how Jesus shares with the woman. So Jesus went the unconventional route to the place where he was led, And his love for the lost led him to this unlikely community which was ignored and despised by the Jews. Sikar means drunkard. I believe the Lord has brought us to to this place with the same intentionality which he took Jesus to Sikar. And it says in John 4, 3-4, he returned again to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so my prayer is, Lord, you know, return again to the UK and come on the way through Clapham Junction to harvest your first fruits. Return again to Clapham, Lord. You see, Jesus' plan for London, I've talked about this before, and I know i know we know it, is, was to bring the nations to London because then he can transform the nations from this place, you know. It's hard to go to some of these places where people come from, you know, because... They're not very open to the gospel. But here, people can walk out the door and they could hear us singing in the street, for example. Jesus' love for the nation is unsurpassed. He wants to invite many in these blocks into relationship with him. So let's look at this conversation between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. It's an interesting conversation because if we think about it, Jesus asks for a drink. Jesus is thirsty, okay? But then at the end of the passage, it says that, and the woman is actually just about to get a drink herself because she's about to put the bucket down into the well, right? So at the beginning of the story, Jesus asks her for a drink, so he's thirsty, And then the woman's gone to get a drink, but then she leaves her water pot, okay? So that tells us that neither the woman nor Jesus eat or drink, but both are satisfied through the interaction that they have with each other. Interesting. Jesus finds joy in relationship with us, right? And he enjoys us, you know, that gives him great satisfaction. It gives him enjoyment to be with us. So verse 7, let's, let's look at that. Then a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Interesting, Jesus starts the conversation. He's sitting by the well. She comes to draw water and he, he asks her for a drink. And it's an interesting dynamic with the Lord asking something of her because it engages her and she then has to respond. I was thinking of there's this YouTube guy called Jimmy Darts. I don't know if you've seen him. He's an American guy. He was a YouTuber that, who then came to Christ, and he does this thing where he goes he goes up to people and he says to them, um, you know, uh, I wonder if you, he goes into a shop and they go, Have you got any? Uh, I I need something for my for my friend's birthday, but I just don't have any money. So I wondered if you could give me something, and and the guy gives him something and he says, well, actually, you know, um, I do have something here. And he gives him like a thousand dollars in return, you know. And it's this thing of like engage. It's really interesting because he engages people by asking them. And then when they respond to him, he then blesses them. And it's it's a kind of interesting dynamic. But I think he probably got it. Maybe he got it from here. Um, Asking something of people. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman asked him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And we can see here, obviously, that Jesus crosses all sorts of cultural lines, right? He crosses racial lines, he crosses socioeconomic lines, he crosses gender boundaries. She's an outcast. We know that no one goes to the well in the middle of the day um, unless they're an outcast. You know, in any culture now where there's wells, it would be a daft thing to do in the middle of a hot day to go to a well. So Jesus sees beyond any every societal boundary because he wants to reach into this woman's situation. The Samaritans are hated by the Jews, but Jesus' love for her is unbounded. And that, my prayer is that we, we have unbounded love when we go out into the world and see through the eyes of Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the god 's gift of eternal life, and who it is who says, "Give me a drink, you would have asked him instead, and he would have given you living water when we talk to people, sometimes we kind of forget that we 're actually offering them something so great as living water that Jesus offers, but we are you know the as Jesus goes on to say, the water that he offers wells up to eternal life, you know so we 've got this precious gift of something which gives its eternal life, you know. And there's lots of people who are going to wells all around the place, drawing water from the wrong wells and never been, being satisfied. And yet we've got, we've got satisfaction in Jesus. We've got hope in Jesus. We know we've got inheritance in Jesus. What an amazing thing. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not get thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw the woman shows her thirst she doesn't yet understand what jesus is quite talking about but but she's engaged she shows her thirst for fulfillment that the lord offers and he offers it through us to people there are loads of thirsty people out there right now you know sometimes it's just a question of of just breaking through that little bit of you know um When you talk to people in London, they're always a little bit suspicious that you're going to rob them or something like that, you know. But once you've broken through that, (laughs) then, um, you know, then, uh, you know, the the rest the Lord can do, you know. (coughs) Verse 16 to 18, at this, Jesus said, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I do not have a husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said... I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and this man you are now living with is not your husband. You have said this truthfully. We could talk about that for a long time, but the the key I want to bring from that is that Jesus has a word of knowledge. (laughs) You know, and it's key to opening up the conversation and demonstrating he's the Messiah. You know. He's not condemnatory, but he reveals her situation in order to restore her situation. And as we go out from here, individually, corporately, words of knowledge, words of healing. You know, words for people demonstrate that Jesus knows those people we're talking to. You know, these words could be about healing, about situations, about the past, about aspirations that they have, about the future. As we practice giving words from a place of love and desire to see people restored, of course Jesus will show up. You know, when 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 we were in... Brazil. We went and did some outreach at a couple of universities, and um, one was a Christian university. Um, man, that that is an amazing place. You know, imagine a guy going into a city for the first time when he's a kid from a from a kind of poor area of the countryside, and somehow, despite living in a favela, basically becoming you know, uh, educated, getting an education and eventually getting through high school and eventually getting to university. And then this guy who I met decided to set up a Christian university. And I was like, that's amazing, you know, humble guy, Christian university. And I was like, so we went to this university. How many people did it have there? I think it was, I think it had 80,000 students at that university, so first and it's connected with, an, uh, with a group of universities that are Christian universities with half a million students. It's like, and he said, he said, he was a funny guy. He said, you know, we put Bible verses on the back of all the toilet doors. So if you go to the loo in a different toilet each time, during your time at the university, you'll have probably read the whole Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, Good, amazing, amazing guy. But, you know, they take people who aren't all Christians, you know, much like this school here. And, um,. But it, but it, you know it was just a really amazing um, amazing place and we we went there and we did some outreach there and um, you know it's a little bit it's, it, it sometimes feels a little bit like pressurizing when you're, when you you 're dropped off at this place and, and they say right, get into your groups, into your teams, and um, you 're going to pray you 're going to ask the Lord for words of knowledge he 's going to give you words of knowledge, and then you 're going to go out and talk to people okay you 've got a couple of minutes to pray and ask the Lord for words so so I was like. I don't like that pressure, but I'll go with it, you know. So I was like, Lord, um, you know, listening, listening, nothing coming, no, not sure. Anyway, so, so I, I didn't have much. And then I was walking down the road. We started doing the outreach. I was walking down with a couple of, with a couple of the students, um, a couple of the young people that we were with on the mission. And I looked down, and there was a butterfly with a broken wing, a dead butterfly a dead butterfly with a broken wing on the floor. And I went to pick it up, and the Lord said, you're going to meet someone who's in an extremely fragile emotional situation. And I was like, okay. So anyway, we then started outreach. And then, anyway, then, as we were going around the uni, I was with a couple of translators, these two girls, who are probably about, like, late teens. And um, we were just going around, basically asking if we could pray for people, talking to people. And I went up to this woman who was, she was dressed in her medical gear because she worked at the university hospital. And she was just about to go inside. And, I, and, and, and we said, oh, stop. And we started chatting with her. And I, I said about this, um, this uh, fr- fragility that she might be feeling. I just said, and, and she started to cry. And the Holy Spirit... You know, God. She was just so open for prayer, and we prayed, and the Holy Spirit came in a major, major way. And she was just weeping and weeping in the street as the Lord touched her and then commissioned her because she was a. a te- she was. She worked in the university hospital, but worked with autistic kids. And she was. She went. She went into that, back into that place, in some senses restored by Jesus. We don't know who we will meet when we go out, but Jesus does. He always knows. And there are those who were sitting on the steps in Deja's dream, unable to get into the building, not understanding what worship was. You know, frustrated and unable to enter the building because they didn't understand in that dream that Deji had. And that's why we have to go out. Verse 23, we know Jesus' response to the woman who asked this question about worship. She's got a real open heart. And she asked this question about worship. Verse 23, a time is coming and is already here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such people to be his worshippers. So we go out to worship, to change the atmosphere. And the Father will draw worshippers who want to worship him in spirit and truth, but don't yet know him. They don't know how to. They're like the woman who just says, do we worship on this mountain? Do we worship in Jerusalem? And he's like, no, worship with your heart. There are people out there who don't yet know Jesus, but who have hearts that just long to know that the restoration that he brings. For people to realize out there, just as the woman at the well realizes, as Jesus reveals himself, that he is the Messiah. There's a large Islamic center just over there, by the way, as well. You know, lots of people who, who want to know the truth. Verse 28, 29. Then the, pe- then the woman left her water jar and went into the city and began telling the people, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Can this be the Christ? You see, words of knowledge speak into people's hearts. You know, this woman who's an outcast becomes, it's, it's a big miracle because she's an outcast, but she becomes the best evangelist ever. She goes back into the town she, uh, and she unlocks the town. And, you know, we, we sometimes, when we go out to talk to people about Jesus, or if we go out with that intent, we think we have to talk to a lot of people about Jesus, you know, and we might measure our success from how many people we talk to. But if we wait for the Holy Spirit, he gives us specific instruction for specific individuals to unlock whole families and communities you know this is the thing it's like that one that one woman unlocks that community we tend to look at the one woman in the conversation but we forget about the whole community there's a whole town which is unlocked because jesus has one word of knowledge for somebody you know and it's like boom you know I believe that you know, as, as you go out and pray for people to be healed or have a word for people, what's going to happen is they're going to be so undone by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit moving, that they're going to go and tell their family. I, I had this wrong with me, but now I don't have it wrong with me. I've been healed. Verse 39... Now many Samaritans from that city believed in him and trusted in him because of what the woman had said when she testified. He he told me all of the things that I have done. So you see, the testimony of the woman whose past was uncovered brings restoration to to her. And then she goes into the city and brings the city of all the people out to Jesus. So the outcast turns evangelist. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because testimony has that power to bring people to Jesus. You know, we know that. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to remain with them him to remain with them and he stayed two more days many more believed in him because of his word and they told the woman we no longer believe just because of what you said for now we have heard him from ourse- for ourselves and we know that this one truly is the savior of all the world you see testimony and miraculous signs are really important but the work for the work of god to last they have to know his word for themselves mm-hmm. you know and to come to him through his word. And the same is true today as much as it was for the Samaritan woman, you know, in that town. You know, Jesus, him, they, hear, they hear her words, that attracts them, and then when they come to find him, they hear the word, his word, and they come to faith in him. And that's an amazing thing. So, um, I've really pretty much got to the end. Let's, let's go from here. Let's ask the Lord for opportunities as we go from here to spread his love this week. It doesn't need to be complex. It can just be simple. It doesn't need to be theologically, you know, um, 100% nailed. It's just about spreading the love of Jesus. You know, the Samaritans are the most hated people by the Jews they were really despised by the Jews you know and Sikar as I said means drunkard Um, so this town seems to be like a really despised Samaritan town and then the woman was rejected from that town and full of shame and an outcast but the Lord came in and, and reversed everything you know he stepped in And he used the most broken, the most shamed person to bring revival and to restore this whole town. Uh, May may the very same thing happen here in Clapham Junction and across Battersea. That this well that Richard Reader Harris, you know, opened, dug and opened, may be completely reopened so that many come to drink and receive the living water of Jesus that we offer them. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.